welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. Well, let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Also to you. From Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord. And righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him. That seek thy face, O Jacob. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's pray. O Lord of hosts and King of glory, cleanse our hearts from all sin and keep our hands without guilt and purify our souls from vanity that we may merit to stand in thy holy place and to receive the blessing from the Lord our God. Wherefore we say glory be to the Father, whose is the earth and all that therein is. Glory be to the Son, the King of glory. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, the righteousness of the God of our salvation, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. Well, we're in the middle of uh, working through the structure of our liturgy, And last week we said that in a covenant renewal worship, there are five uh, basic headings under which everything else falls. And uh, these headings are in your bulletin, they're bold and underlined, and uh, those five headings are the call to worship, the confession, the consecration, the communion, and the commission. Um, They're all C's just for uh, mnemonic purposes. Uh, This morning, we come to the confession portion of the service, which is what we're doing uh, right now. And there are two kinds of confession that we make uh, during this part of the service. Uh, First, there is the confession of our sins to God. And then second, there is the confession of our common faith in Christ. Both of these confessions are commanded in both Old and New Testaments. Uh, And this morning, I'll just say a word about the confession of sins. Leviticus uh, 26.40 says, If they shall confess their iniquity 
and the iniquity of their fathers, then I will remember my covenant. Likewise, 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Before any sinful creature can draw near to a holy God, atonement must be made for sin. And so following the sacrificial pattern of the old covenant, we too place a confession of sin towards the beginning of our worship service, and then we have the communion meal at the end. One of the big differences, of course, is that under the new covenant, covenant, we do not bring uh, one of our animals to be slaughtered at the altar. Uh, Instead, we come with the sacrifices of a broken spirit and a contrite heart, Psalm 51, 17. Although this is an internal sacrifice that only God can see, it is still a real sacrifice. And we seek to match with our bodies what should be happening in our hearts. And we do this by kneeling to confess our sins. We see in Scripture that sometimes people kneel to pray, such as Solomon in 1 Kings 8, or Daniel in Daniel 6, or Paul in Acts 20. Other times, they stand to confess their sins, such as the Jews in Nehemiah chapter 9. Both postures are appropriate, and we do both in our worship service. We kneel to confess our sins, and we stand to confess our common faith. Whatever the posture, the importance of confession is that we say what God says about our sins. We do not kneel to make excuses. We do not kneel to blame our spouse or our children or our hard circumstances for our sins. When we kneel, we are taking responsibility for all of our actions, our thoughts, our words, our deeds. And anything in us that God would call a sin, we call a sin as well. This is what confession is, and that is the divinely ordained path to forgiveness. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so as you're able, uh, let us kneel before the Lord. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ Covenant Church, because you have confessed your sins holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning uh, comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. These are the words of God. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, 
and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this promise that, that one day every tongue will confess your lordship. We ask that you would hasten that day and cause it to be so even now in our church and in this region. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we come to uh, what is one of the most important Bible passages in all of church history, one of the most uh, significant battlegrounds in the early church over who Christ was. Uh, You and I take for granted that Jesus is Lord, right? That's what it means to be a Christian. But once upon a time, uh, that was simply a man in Galilee, a teacher who Uh, came and did miracles and then died on a cross, and then you were left to decide, who is this guy? Who was that guy? Uh, Was he really the Son of God? And this text this morning contains some of the most fundamental Christian beliefs. Uh, It contains this great confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. It also contains one of the most explicit declarations of Christ's true divinity, his equality with God, and also his true humanity, his full uh, human nature that he took to himself. Here in these verses, we could say, are the essentials of the gospel, the doctrines that separate the Christian faith from every other belief system. Uh, You cannot really call yourself a Christian unless you believe these things, namely that There was an eternal son. There is an eternal son who is equal with God, who took on a true human nature and that it didn't create two persons. It was one singular person, the person of the son who took unto himself a human nature, fully God, fully man. And he humbled himself unto death. He died on the cross for sinners and was resurrected and exalted above all. This is uh, the gospel message. This is what separates us from, say, Mormons or uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. We believe these doctrines. So uh, it's fitting that we come to this uh, section during this season of Advent. As we remember the first coming of Christ in his humble birth and also look forward to when he comes again in glory. My plan is to preach uh, two sermons on this text uh, this morning. We're going to focus on really just the first half, verses 1 to 5, and then uh, next week on Christmas, uh, I'll answer the question, why did God become man? And uh, verses 6 to 11 will help answer that question. That's where we're going. Well, let's uh, work through our text and start, as always, by uh, setting the context for these verses. Uh, Paul is in prison in Rome. He's writing Philippians as a thank you letter for their financial support. And we've, we've made it now to chapter 2. We finished a chapter. And in chapter 1, Paul expresses his deep love for and joy in the Philippians. Uh, the Philippian church is a shining example of what a healthy church 
should look like. And so uh, this is a great book for us to uh, begin with as we are a little a two-year-old, not even a two-year-old baby church. So if there's lots of uh, crying and fussing in our church, we should just say, it's because we're, we're two years old, okay? This is to be expected. If we're doing that in 20 years, uh, we got issues. But uh, this is where we're at, where we're at now. And uh, the Philippian church is a good church, a happy church, and they're unified, and Paul wants them to stay that way. And so he issues this call for unity, which is especially important because there is persecution coming. There is persecution already happening in Philippi. And if they're going to face down their opponents without fear, the Philippians need to be united in some beliefs. United that to live is Christ and to die is gain. They need to be united in their belief that faith is a gift from God and so also is suffering. Paul wants them to be united in their belief that it is a great honor to suffer for the name of Jesus. You think about the Philippians, we're talking about them 2,000 years later. And we talk about them differently than we talk about the Galatians or the Corinthians or the Laodiceans. And it's because of their real living faith that you will really, you will really meet these people in glory one day, these people that Paul is uh, talking about. So that's what we've seen so far in this letter. And Paul is now getting into some of the uh, particulars, the specifics of what their conduct should look like while he is away. What should life look like as they are citizens of heaven and also citizens on earth? Uh, He begins in chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, by saying this, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. So Paul begins here with uh, a fourfold appeal, and he essentially is asking four rhetorical questions in which the implied or hoped-for answer to all of them is yes. Uh, You could read verse 1 kind of this way. Is there among you any consolation or encouragement in Christ? Yes. Is there among you any comfort of love? Is there among you any fellowship of the Spirit? Is there among you any bowels? And that's the Splunk noise word again, Splunk not here. Is there among you any bowels and mercies? And all of the people should say, yes, that is here. Paul's saying that if there is uh, those things, those qualities in the church, if there's real love and fellowship in the Holy Spirit, then you should be uh, manifesting that manifesting that love in other ways, namely in your unity. There is only one Holy Spirit. There is only one Lord, one faith, and one, one baptism. And this uh, unity that we have in the Holy Spirit should be outwardly manifested in a lot of ways. Verse 2 is going to uh, demonstrate four places Paul wants them to strive for unity in. And this is going to fulfill Paul's joy. If there is anything that a pastor, that an apostle wants for his church plant, it's that they be unified. And so Paul says, fulfill ye my joy that ye be, and then he gives four things, here they are, like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, and of one mind. 
like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, and of one mind. You'll notice the first and the fourth one are kind of the same thing. Like-minded, of one mind, same word in Greek. And so let's take one of these, uh, take each of these one at a time, uh, but we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this, this first and fourth one. What, what is like-mindedness? What is like-mindedness? Like-minded here uh, refers to the way that the Philippians think. They are to have the same mindset and one that is characterized by humility. They must not think of themselves more highly than they ought. This is how like-mindedness is used elsewhere in Paul's letters. We see this in Romans. We see this in uh, 2 Corinthians. We see it actually also in Philippians later on. He says to a couple ladies in the church who were arguing, I beseech Iodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. That's Philippians 4.2. So whatever uh, disagreements there were or there are in uh, the church, Paul believes that this like-mindedness can solve uh, the problem. And notice he doesn't take a side with those two women. He doesn't say, and by the way, Iodius, Syntyche's right. You should agree with her. (laughs) He's saying both of them can do this. Both of them can be like-minded, which seems to imply not necessarily just an agreement in whatever the dispute was, but an agreement in the spirit in which they have that dispute. And this is a very important uh, distinction. It's important because humility of mind is the only way that a church can be united despite having many other minor and major disagreements. That is to say, like-mindedness here refers not to all of us agreeing about what to eat after church, okay? Maybe some of you like pineapple on pizza. Maybe some of you crazy people do not, all right? <laughs> we, we, it doesn't mean we all have to agree on uh, what uh, uh, is the best color to paint the church. You know, someone really might want hot pink to be the exterior, and some of us might really not, right? All the, all the little girls want that. So uh, we're not talking about that kind of like-mindedness, which we might call kind of uniformity of thought. We all uh, wear, look, have the same uh, opinions about everything. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the spirit in which you hold your opinion. How do you hold that? Uh, To give you a more uh, maybe realistic example of how we will have to apply this, both now and in the years to come, Just consider uh, any of the more uh, controversial doctrines uh, that Christians like to argue about. So you could pick election, you could pick predestination, you could pick uh, eschatology or uh, baptism. Pick whatever issue that people argue about. Every church should have some conviction about what the Bible says there, okay? Oh, our church certainly does, and we, we tell you in our, in our documents what they are. You hear it from the pulpit. And yet, the different churches in Centralia and Chehalis can actually disagree on all of those things and still be like-minded if we hold them with humility. If we refuse to make those doctrinal distinctives the thing that we boast in rather than boasting only in the Lord. And so to be like-minded is to have the same spirit of humility in our thinking. 
It is to recognize that we know a lot less than we think we do. Even the wisest pagans recognize this. Uh, Perhaps you know Socrates. He famously said, I am the wisest man alive, for I know one thing, and that is that I know nothing. Or we could put it more biblically. All right, that's Socrates. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 2, If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. And that comes right after the verse, uh, knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies. So you can can find out uh, what kind of wisdom you have based on whether your knowledge is puffing you up or if it's building other people up. Uh, Paul says, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. We'll talk more about this uh, in a moment. There are many things that we are overconfident about. And one of the marks of genuine wisdom, of genuine knowledge, is not that you have no strong convictions. I hope you have very strong convictions about a lot of things. But rather that you hold those convictions with what the Bible calls the meekness of wisdom. Listen to how uh, James describes this in his letter. This is James 3, 13 to 18. He says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation, that's a, a good manner of life, his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So what are the marks of whether you have heavenly wisdom? How do you know whether what you believe is from heaven or if it's uh, from the devil? Well, James says here those marks are purity, peace, gentleness. Are you easy to be entreated? Are you full of mercy and bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Is your conviction impartial and without hypocrisy? If these qualities are not present in us, there's a good chance it's, it's not actually heavenly wisdom that we possess. It might be from uh, the devil. It might just be our carnal opinion. And so to think about like-mindedness, like-mindedness does not require uniformity of thought. But it does require that whatever we believe is tested by this heavenly rubric. And humility is essential if we are going to have like-mindedness in the body. So we'll we'll talk a bit more about this, but let me continue on through these other three things that are going to fulfill Paul's joy. Uh, The second thing Paul says he wants the Philippians to have is the same love. There should be unity in our affections for one another. As we saw back in chapter 1, Paul wants love to be abounding in us with all knowledge and judgment. And this is because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Ghost. If we don't love one another, John says, we might not be Christians. 
One of the ways you know you're a Christian is because you love the brethren. If we don't feel affection for one another, it's possible that the Holy Spirit isn't actually in you. So do we have that same love in God together? Do we love the things that God loves, and do we hate the things that God hates? The third thing Paul wants the Philippians uh, to have is to be of one accord. Uh, in, uh, in Greek, this is literally uh, to have the same heart or same soul. That, that's the word. It's one word, same-hearted or same-souled together. And the emphasis here is on a unity in purpose. You, you get along with one another. You can walk side by side. We can stand together and fight against our common adversaries. That's the idea of being of one accord. And then fourth, uh, Paul says again, I want you to be of one mind. So he's reinforcing this like-minded humility. And then uh, in verses 3 to 5, he's going to elaborate on what like-mindedness looks like and what some of the enemies of like-mindedness are. Uh, So let me read verses 3 to 5 now. He says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So there are two enemies that Paul mentions here. Two enemies to unity in the church. And these are both uh, different species of pride. They are strife and vainglory. Strife and vainglory. If you remember in chapter 1, we saw preachers were going around preaching the true gospel, but Paul says they were preaching out of envy and strife. Those were the motives behind their actions. Strife is, uh, it's not a word that we use a lot, but it essentially means selfish ambition. Strife is the result of treating other Christians as rivals instead of brothers. Strife turns people who should be your friends into enemies and opponents. And uh, this, is, this is rampant in the church today. Um, if you're a Christian who lives in America, uh, the odds are that your fiercest opponents, your fiercest and most vocal critics, are probably going to be other professing Christians. Um, in, in the time that I've been in ministry, since I was you know, 19, 20 years old now, uh, it's, if I go on campus and I preach... It's, yes, the gays will cuss you out, yeah, they will do that, but it's usually other Christians who are going to come uh, take you aside and say, this is not how to do it. Um, A a good buddy of mine, he travels the country, his name's Keith Darrell, he's a campus preacher, he just preaches all across the country, campus to campus, and he will tell you this, this exact same thing. There are certain people who really hate God, who are really unbelievers, and they will They'll, they'll let you know what they think. But the other category is a bunch of professing Christians who go, who go to church, but who just don't like the way that he is preaching. Okay? And he's not, whole, he's not doing the turn or burn thing. Right? He's, he's just preaching the gospel. And this is what you will find if you start to really speak the truth. You are going to have other Christians take you aside and ask you... Uh, that was kind of mean, <laughs> or that wasn't really loving because their feelings were hurt. And, and sometimes they might be right. 
Uh, and sometimes they might be wrong. But at the end of the day, you have to answer before God as to what was motivating you. Was it selfish ambition? Was it just angst inside of you? Was it just you want to let your voice be heard? Was it vain glory or was it love? The great miracle of church history is that we're still here, despite us fighting amongst ourselves. Uh, when you read church history, you kind of just wonder, how is it that God, God is very patient? God tolerates a lot, and um, that is, I think, one of his great uh, lessons for us to learn, is that uh, what the things that we think are really important right now that need to get changed or fixed, God's a lot more patient uh, than we are. So we need uh, to learn that. Now, I want to make an important distinction here so that you don't mishear what I'm saying, because a lot of people see fighting and conflict in the church and just assume that is a bad thing. Uh, but that is not how fighting and conflict is presented in the Bible. Um, if you read the book of Acts, uh, conflict and fighting is a constant with the apostles. Either a riot or a revival or both seem to just follow the apostles. Uh, fighting is bad when selfish ambition is involved. But fighting is good and godly, even commanded by God, in the sense that uh, God says, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Jesus was constantly getting into fights, arguing with people who did not yet know as they ought to know. And so fighting can be good or bad, depending on you, depending on the situation. Do you know how to do this? Do you know when to speak up and when to be silent? The church is called the church militant on earth for a reason. Yes, we are the bride of Christ. Yes, we are feminine towards God, but we are also the body of Christ. We are masculine warriors towards the world. That is our disposition towards the world. One of the reasons that we include our children in the worship service is because Psalm 8 says that out of the mouths of babies and nursing infants, God has ordained strength. And why? It says, because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. Children are sharp arrows in the hand of a warrior. And so when you hear a baby cry in the service, or when you children are trying to figure out how to sing the next verse in the song, we all, adults, should be thinking, war cry, war song. This is how God defeats his enemies. So we are all called to fight, including the little ones, including the most helpless little child. Isn't that just like God? He takes the weak things in the world to shame the strong. He takes a baby who doesn't know anything, <laughs> and that's what he uses to confound the wisdom of the world. Fighting is essential to protect, to maintain the unity of the church, and that is something that all of us are involved in. But we must not do it out of strife or vainglory. So we have to be able uh, to kind of do two things that might seem opposed at once. We have to be at the same time humble and meek and also 
ready to take up arms and fight for the truth. Sometimes it's not going to look like you are humble and meek when you're fighting, but you must be, right? And when people say that you're not, yes, check your heart, but still, don't let that stop you from fighting. Like-mindedness, humility, and love should not make us naive about wolves. It does not mean we never call out the errors of other churches or that we downplay the importance of good doctrine. The difference is the spirit in which we fight, not whether we fight or not. The difference is in the spirit in which we fight. Do we fight to defend our ego, or do we fight because we love the people we're talking to? Do we fight because we want people to think highly of us, or do we fight because we want them to think highly of God? This is not easy to do, and there will be times when we will get this wrong, but that should not stop us from seeking like-mindedness with one another and like-mindedness with other churches. This is how the body of Christ builds itself up in love. I was thinking about this text this week, talking to my wife last night about um, having to preach verse by verse is really good. For me, it's really good for you, for us to make sure we're doing all the things that Paul says in here. And this is a really uh, hard text because humility is really hard. (laughs) Um, And I, I told her, I think... There's kind of two different sermons you could preach on this text. I could have come in here and said, uh, the reason why things are not going well is because we don't all agree. And Paul wants us to agree. He wants us to be like-minded. And so you guys should all agree with me. <laughs> right? And, and I've heard sermons like that, basically. And, and you see what is the equivocation there. You take a biblical word, a biblical concept, like-mindedness, but then you fill it with your own meaning, okay? And we, and we do this, okay? Um, and so it's important that we remember the context. Paul is writing not to Christ Covenant Church. He's writing to a region, a region that we said was fifty to 80,000 people, not unlike our region. So you read Philippians, and there's no way Paul is telling them, I want you all to agree on every single thing, because we know they weren't. We know it's also not possible to do that, because we don't even know, you can't even know 50,000 people or whatever. So uh, this is important to understand what he's saying and also what he's not saying. And all of this, of course, is, uh, is made really explicit Uh, in the next verses as we look at the mind of Christ. So uh, let's move to verse 4, and Paul gives us some really practical ways that we can do this like-mindedness thing together, okay? So we got to be humble, but what are some outward expressions of this? In verse 4, Paul says, "'Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others.'" Right, that's... uh, This is totally counter to our default way of living our lives. You wake up in the morning thinking, I need to eat something. I need to put on my clothes. I need to take a shower. I need to whatever. It's not your default to just be thinking, 
I'm awake. How can I serve everyone around me today, not uh, considering my own self higher than them? Uh, Well, Paul gives us a way to do this. Uh, One of the best ways to cultivate like-mindedness is by looking out for one another's interests. The world thinks that more for you means less for me, that we live in a closed system, and that our economy is a zero-sum game. But that is not the real world. This is God's world. And in God's world, you put one tiny little seed in the ground, and more than one comes back up. You plant a bunch of these tiny little seeds in a field, and by God's grace, you get 30, 60, and 100 fold. Uh, That's not a zero-sum world. This is why God says in Ecclesiastes 11, "'Cast your bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days.'" Give a portion to seven and also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And if we believe that, then we would look out for one another. This church, the school that meets here, would not exist if Christians didn't believe this. It's risky to start a church. It's risky to call a pastor. It's risky to start a school. It's risky to hire teachers. It's risky, if you're a parent, to entrust your children to those teachers. But it's risky like putting a seed in the ground. It's risky like planting a seed in God's world. If all you ever do is sow to yourself... The Bible says you will reap corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, if you have generous eyes and are planting seeds and have been planting seeds your whole life, the Spirit says He will give you a great harvest. So one of the ways we can practice this like-mindedness is by being generous to one another, by considering other people's interests by casting our bread upon the waters, by planting seeds wherever we go. This is what Christ did, and this is what the mind of Christ does. I'll close with this. Uh, Jesus says in John 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat, unless a little seed, falls into the ground and dies, it abideth alone. But if it dies, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. Christ planted himself. He planted himself in the heart of the earth. He willingly went to the cross, not for anything he did, but for what you and I did and what you and I still do. Jesus did not look only to his own interests. He looked upon the eternal well-being of us. And if we would acquire that same mind of Christ for one another, we must first know the mind that Christ has for us. You think, how is it possible for anyone to love very unlovable people? (laughs) It's going to take a miracle. It's going to take God coming in the flesh and dying, right? 
How bad are you? You're so bad that God had to die. He had to become a little baby, live a life, and then be obedient unto the cross. If we would acquire that way of living and being, we have to know Christ's love for us, that this is what he has done. And so I'll close by asking, have you beheld the king in his beauty? Have you smelled the fragrance of Christ's anointing oil, the aroma of life within him? Have you tasted and seen the goodness of God? Have you stretched out your hand towards his garment and touched him by faith? If not, Christ invites you to do so today. Turn to him and be healed all the ends of the earth. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we confess that we are a proud people. We are an entitled people. We, we walk around uh, thinking that people owe us things. We live our lives thinking that you owe us things. God, forgive us for being high-minded. Forgive us for acting like we know when we really don't. God, I ask that you would move in this region, in our church and the other churches. You said that if the pagans built the Tower of Babel, nothing would be withheld from them. How much more than if the saints of God are united in a common confession, in a common love, in a common spirit? How could you withhold anything from us? You who want to give us the world and are are giving us the world. So God, move in us. Give us that spirit of humility, that mind of Christ that only you can give. We ask this in Jesus' name. And amen. Amen. In 28, Paul says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. This call to examine ourselves is a command for us to acknowledge the unity of Christ's body. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. In the Corinthian church, pride and disunity and strife were rampant. And thus the meaning of the Lord's Supper had been turned on its head. Instead of eating together as one people, some Christians were going hungry while others were getting drunk. This command then to examine ourselves is not a call for deep introspection as to how well we did last week, but rather it is a call for us to prove that we are one body in Christ. Are you baptized? Were you baptized into the same name and Holy Spirit as the rest of us? Then examine yourself as such. You are part of that one loaf. You are part of this one cup. You are part of the one body of our Lord. And so come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. It is far more blessed to give than to receive. And so go forth this week with a generous eye. Receive now the benediction. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.